It really is a privilege to be able to preach. And Ben, I thank you so much for your, your friendship and for your offering me this opportunity to be able to stand up and preach the word tonight. Um, as I look out over this room, I get profoundly energized. And it's not just because of your great costumes that you're wearing. But truly, as I, as I look out over just the, 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 the people in this room, the young men and women that you are in this room, what excites me and energizes me is I just think about, God, what potential is there in this one room for you to be glorified in this earth? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's actually kind of moving to me because I just think, God, if you grip the lives, grip the hearts of the men and women right here, what might you do for your name across the globe? That is so, so uh, exciting to me. And, uh, and I pray that in these formative years of you all being in the university, that you would covenant with God that your life will be completely committed to Him and sold out to Him. Um, another thing that I love about having this privilege to speak to uh, UGA students, I know it's not all UGA students, but predominantly, <clears throat> is that, um, of course, the University of Georgia is one of the top universities in the United States, and so therefore it's one of the top universities in, in the world. And so I know how incredibly smart you are to have gotten into the University of Georgia. I mean, I think the incoming freshmen had uh, this year had like a 4.9 or 11 GPA or something like that just to get in. So I know how incredibly smart you all are, but um, y'all are smart, but you're not weird smart. Do you know what I mean by that? Some people are so smart, their IQ is so high that they're just like, and they just sit there like slooped over their computer. And it's like, dude, just you don't need to be around anybody. But as Nicole and I have gotten to know you, I mean, I'm thinking, what's that other school? Like Georgia Tech, something like that, you know? Yeah, it's true. Hey, I used to go to, a, I worked at a PCA church that was like two miles from Georgia Tech. These are my friends, and, and I say this to their faces as well, you know? But I mean, truly, like the average UGA student that I've gotten to know, I mean, it's like, this person's great. This is cool. Good conversation, sequential, not awkward. And, uh, and so that, that really does, does, it, um, does excite me as well, just knowing the potential that you all in particular have to make an impact in this world for Jesus Christ. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we thank you for this evening, and again, I'm so humbled and honored to be able to open up your word with these men and women, and I pray with all of my heart, Lord, that you might do something in uh, in people's lives as a result of our time of looking at your word that you might even change some trajectories and in, in lives we pray that you might do this for the glory of your name among the nations and we pray this in Jesus's name amen I know that in the south you're not supposed to talk about money but I want to let you all know that um my wife and I recently, our, our financial situation has changed very drastically for the better. We've learned that we're totally unexpected. We're going to be the recipients of um, a huge amount of money. It's not come to us yet, but I mean, I'm talking like millions of dollars. And um, so we're trying to kind of think about how can we protect our children? We don't want them to be weird. We want them to be normal, you know, that, 
that kind of thing. And so we're just like, God, how can we, you know, honor you with this, um, all this money? Um, essentially what happened is um, there was a, a Nigerian prince who emailed me and he said, look, I have like $50 million. I need to park it somewhere and just send me your bank account number and, um, and I'll, I'll send it to your, your account. So I gave him our, our account numbers. Um, the money hasn't come in yet, but he says it will. I have noticed some charges recently that I didn't notice on my credit card. But anyway, so I'm sure that it will, it, it'll come. It's um, a little bit like Michael Scott from The Office. You all familiar with the show? Where he said, look, when the deposed king of Nigeria emails you and asks for help, you help him. Right? So anyway, um, have any of you ever gotten this news that somebody wants to give you millions of dollars? Any of you? One person. Great. Okay. All right. One other person knows what I'm talking about. Um, folks, I hope you don't fall for that. Is it credible good news when someone says that they just want to park millions of dollars into your bank account? Of course not. Of course not. Don't, don't fall for it. Um, folks, the Gospel of John gives us credible good news. Credible good news that has the potential to change your life in what it tells us about Jesus Christ in John chapter 20, namely that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I, I want to point out, that's either true or, or false. There's not some third option, right? And, and I want to suggest here at the beginning, uh, something that I said to my wife several years ago, after we were married, we we're both believers. We went to this show in Atlanta, um, the Passion, Passion Play, and there's this very vivid depiction of Jesus being executed uh, toward the end of that. And I remember it, this, this is in the Civic Center in downtown Atlanta, and I remember us just sitting in the car as we were about to leave, and I kind of looked at her, I said, honey, I was like, if it's really true that Jesus died and then rose from the dead, that should change everything about our lives. That should have an impact on absolutely every decision that we make. Now, on the other hand, if it's not true, if it's a ruse, then don't pay any attention to it. Forget about it. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, what happens after we die is a question that everybody has asked at some point, isn't it? And it's something that children ask. And it was, um, it was very poignant and very touching a year or two ago when my six-year-old son, he was, I guess he was five years old at the time, when he found out for the first time that my wife uh, will one day die. And he just like bawled. I mean, it was so sad to watch it as a parent. Your five-year-old kid crying when he's like, wait, what? You mean mom's going to die? And he's just like sobbing, tears coming down his face because he realized what's going to happen to his mom. And then with tears still streaming down his eyes, I said, I said, buddy, and dad's going to die too one day. And he looked at me and he just said, will you make me a sandwich? So anyway, so it was a little bit um, less, he was a little bit less distraught. Um, but I, I want you to consider this that death is a reality that you will prepare for if you are wise. Uh, think about it, uh, think about it like, like this. Um, let's pretend that I, I had a crystal ball, and let's pretend that this crystal ball is like 100% accurate. This thing never lies. And the crystal ball told us that uh, over the next six months, 50% of people in this room, 50% of people who, living in Athens will die of COVID. Let's just pretend that we knew that that was going to happen. What steps would you take? 
if you knew there was a 50% chance that you were going to die in the next six months, isn't it true you would maybe like have some conversations with people that you've always needed to have or wanted to have? You would uh, maybe write out a will if you own anything. If you're like me, you were in college, you didn't know what that was. You certainly didn't need one because you didn't own anything. Um, you might get, if you're a little bit more sinister, you might get some life insurance, right? You know, so that at least somebody could be enriched by your, your demise. Um, what steps would you take? Well, guess what? We don't need a crystal ball. We will all die one day. And are you ready for that? And have you ever given any thought to that? This is how one, one author puts it. One of the universal problems we've all got is death. Let's face it, everybody dies. I'm going to die someday, and so are you. Only a fool would go all through life unprepared for something he knows is inevitable. Are you ready for death? John chapter 20 just addresses this question head on. Now, last week, if you were here, you know that, uh, that Ben preached on the resurrection of Lazarus. And I want you to think of the fit between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus in this way. Think of the resurrection of Lazarus as being an appetizer in preparation for the main course, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of it in, in those terms a little bit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who conquered death who defeated death. And that's why this sermon is titled The Day Death Died. And what I want us to see for the next few minutes as we jump into this text is that the resurrection of Jesus gives hope to those who trust their lives to him. So if you will, grab your sheet of paper or your phone, or if you brought a Bible, look down at that, and we'll pick up with verse 1. In the previous chapter, of course, Jesus was executed by the Romans, the only innocent person ever to suffer Starting at verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Now, we can be sure that at this point, Peter, you know, gently grabs uh, Mary Magdalene's shoulders and says, Mary Magdalene? Oh, you of little faith, why are you worried? Don't you remember that Jesus told us this at least three times when he was alive, that he was going to be arrested, executed, but then on the third day he would rise from the dead. Why are you worried, Mary Magdalene? Uh, no, that's not what happens. Peter's like, huh, what? And, and then verse 3 picks back up. So Peter went out with the other disciple, who's John, we believe, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, and what's that next word? What's the next word? He saw and believed. Hmm. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So you, you, you get the idea so far. Mary Magdalene goes. She realizes the tomb is empty. She goes and gets Peter and John. They go. And then they're kind of freaked out and they run back to their homes. But we see that Mary Magdalene hangs around. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb 
and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I want you to notice that Mary Magdalene and Peter and John, they go to the tomb expecting to find what? The tomb intact and the body of Jesus still where? In the tomb, right? I mean, they're not expecting that Jesus would have risen from the dead. Believe it or not, even in the first century, people knew that people don't just get up and come back to life three days after they died, right? I mean, it's easy for us to cast aspersions and look at them and say, oh, these stupid pre-scientific people. I mean, they just thought this stuff happened all the time. No, they did not. We need to give them a little bit more credit that they were intelligent. But isn't it weird that this is included? I mean, this is kind of an embarrassing detail, isn't it? And I would suggest this is the type of detail, the fact that Mary Magdalene and, and some of Jesus' followers went to the tomb on Sunday morning expecting him to still be there. And yet he wasn't, and they're surprised. Now, let me, let me ask you this question. If we were going to make up a religion, would we have included this detail in there? No, that, that's not how this works. If we're going to make up a religion, it's like, all right, well, let's say that uh, Jesus, yeah, we'll say that Jesus rose from the dead, right? And so we'll, you know, write all this down, and, and, um, and we believe it. I mean, all of us believe it, and, if you, and you need to believe it too. And if you don't believe it, you're what? Stupid, right? You're stupid for not believing this. Uh, that's how this would have been if this were fabricated. But the reason that this is included is because this is exactly how it happened. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene, I mean, she, like, I think any of us, if we, if we were his followers, it's like she wants to grab onto him. She, she wants to cling to him. And I think Jesus is saying, look, you've had that for several years, but, but the time is, is going to be changing where I won't be with you in the, in the flesh anymore. So you need to kind of get used to that, Mary Magdalene, that I'm not going to be with you uh, in, my, in my, my body anyway. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, we would say Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Again, notice, for fear of the Jews. It's the type of thing you wouldn't include. You're not going to put that in there. That's an embarrassing detail. They were scared of the Jews, right? Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then his disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I love that Jesus is willing to show his followers evidence so that they will believe. He says, look, if you're, if you're struggling, if you're struggling with unbelief, then just, you can put your hands in here. You put your hands in my side, right? I think he would have said to, what we're going to see Thomas in a moment, 
You know, Thomas was like the first empiricist. I'm not going to believe it unless if I can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, right? And Jesus doesn't say, nope, you should just, just believe. Take a leap of faith. Jesus says, if you actually want to put your hands and fingers in my gross hands, like you can. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Jesus condescends to us in a loving way because he knows that that's what some people need. If that's what you need, you, you got it, dude. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is kind of like John's version of, um, of the Great Commission. The Father has sent me, and now I'm sending you out into the world to tell the world about me. That, tell them that I'm, I'm risen, that I'm God come in the flesh. That's the mission the first disciples had. It's, it's also the, the mission of the church to, to this day. And he, it's very interesting. This detail is only recorded in John that he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a little bit like an appetizer, another appetizer, if you will, of what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. If you know your Bible, um, Acts is the story of what happened after Jesus um, ascended back to his Father in, in heaven, and, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on people. This is a little bit of an appetizer for that, I think. And then Jesus says something very weird, and it just seems willy-nilly, kind of out of left field, about sin and forgiveness. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What? Why does sin come up in, in this, this section of, of John? Well, let, let me give you a highly literal translation, because this is kind of weird. Like, who's he talking to, and what is he talking about? Here's a highly literal translation, like right out of the Greek. Whoever's sins you forgive will have already been forgiven them. And whoever's sins you do not forgive, will have already not been forgiven them. What is that about? Think of it like this. Uh, do y'all know what April 15th is? What is that known as? Okay, tax day. You will learn this once you get out of college and have a job, I promise. You're going to just curse that day every year, because if you're like me, You'll be like, oh my gosh, it's April 15th and my taxes are due now. And then you have to run to H&R Block or wherever and get your taxes done. Well, imagine, you know, tax day comes and you send in your, your taxes. And then to your great terror, you get a letter from the IRS. And the IRS says, uh, we are auditing you. We think that you're cheating. We don't believe that you could possibly give that much money to your church. That's a little, like, suggestive thing for um, what you should do with your churches. Anyway, um... So you send them everything, right, to show that you're not lying on your taxes, and you, you nervously wait. And then one day there's a knock on your door, and there's a woman from the IRS, and um, she, she comes, comes to your front door, and she says, uh, we have been investigating you and uh, your tax return, and I'm here to notify you that everything's fine. You'd be like, oh my gosh, I was going to have a heart attack. Why would you come to my house to tell me that, right? Um, think of it like this. The IRS agent was not the one who cleared you, right? It was the IRS that cleared you. The IRS agent was just the messenger who said that you're, you're okay. When the agent came to your house, get this, this is, this is really at the heart of the verse. When the IRS agent came to your house, she declared something that was already true. And that's really the same thing here that Jesus is saying to his apostles and to those who lead the churches, they have a certain authority, and it's authority to, to declare by the authority of God that something is 
true or that something is not true. God's ministers have the authority to declare on the authority of God that people's sins are, are forgiven. So, okay, what does this look like and how does it tie in with the resurrection? We're going to come to that in one second. But let me, let me tell you, just boots on the ground, this is what this, this looks like for me as somebody like a, like a pastor. A person will, will come to me sometimes and say, I did this thing this week. Or I did this thing five years ago or, or 20 years ago. I've, I've got this pornography habit and I cannot shake it. I'm like powerless over this thing. Or, or my anorexia is, is just an enormous battle for me right now. Or I have, I've gone back to cutting again. And can God forgive me? Will God forgive me this time? Yeah, maybe he'll forgive me for the other times. But what about this time, this new wound, this new sin against him that I've committed? And, and when people say that to me, I, I, I'm going to get around pretty quickly to asking the question, well, who are you trusting to forgive you of that sin? Who are you relying on? Are you relying on yourself? Is your hope bound up in your commitment, your promise that I swear, God, I swear, I swear, I will never do it again. Is that what you're relying on? Your good resolve, your commitment and dedication? And if you are, I'm going to say, that's a rotten foundation. You need to quit looking at yourself and all the things that you're going to promise and you swear you'll never do it, do it again. You need to look to Jesus. And if you are looking to Jesus, if your, your hope is all bound up in him, then I'm going to tell you on the authority of the word of God, your sins are forgiven. Not because of me. I don't have authority to forgive my own sins, much less somebody else's sins. But on the, on the authority of God's word, your sins are, are forgiven. Now that raises the question, why does sin come up here? Again, it's kind of willy-nilly. What's the connection between sin and Jesus's resurrection, well, the reality is that the only people who will never die are those who have never sinned. Does that, is, does that knock you out? <laughs> it knocks me out. Well, I'm definitely not going to ever rise from the dead like Jesus did because of my record, because of the sins that I've, I've committed. You see, to experience victory over death, to experience resurrection life, your sins have to be forgiven. I mean, that's, that's the only way. See, when Jesus died on, on the cross, he paid the penalty for sin, and so he took care of death itself. Listen to how one author writes it. I think these words are just beautiful. The life Jesus gives is nothing less than the indestructible life of the resurrection, the very life of the deathless God himself. To believe in Jesus means that death lies defeated. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Death slain forever. One of the very difficult things that pastors have to go through is conducting funerals and probably the most difficult thing pastors have to do sometimes is bury babies. Uh, if you ever go down to Miami, we were in, my wife and I and our kids were in Miami for six years. If you're ever going down to Miami, let's say on spring break, you, you can just know as you're going down the main highway, 
down toward Miami. You go a little bit past Miami. Maybe you're going down to the Keys, closer to where we lived. And, and if you just keep your eye to the left side of the highway, you'll see a funeral. Rivero Caballero, I believe is the name. And, uh, and I buried a baby there about 100 yards off of the, the highway in a grave. You know, every time I stand it uh, over a grave and, and do a graveside service like I did for little Samuel Bertrand, um, I see the, the hole in the ground as almost the earth swallowing up another one. Swallowing up another one. And one thing that I always say when I'm ever, whenever I'm standing at, at the graveside is that if you are in Christ, you need to, you have the right to shake your fist at death. Death, this is not the last word. You do not have the last word, death, because Jesus Christ is risen. And he conquered, he triumphed over death. That's what caused the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 to say sarcastically to death, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. We have victory over death itself. Well, Jesus, how about, a, how about an illustration, you know, the, the connection between resurrection and, and forgiveness of sins? But why don't you illustrate this for us, John? And, and, and John does exactly that. Look at the next verse 24. Watch how forgiveness comes to Jesus' disciple, Thomas. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, this man of science, right? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I mean, Thomas had been with Jesus for three, three and a half years. He's one of the twelve. And he's just kind of unclear on what all is happening, right? He can't believe it, even though all these people are telling him that, that they... That the tomb was empty and that they'd seen Jesus. You know, unbelief is a sin. Clearly, that's a sin to not trust God if he tells you something. And um, it's because unbelief means that you're trusting yourself instead of trusting Christ. That, that's the essence of it. You probably know John three sixteen. I won't do it, but I'm sure we could all say it in unison, right? Uh, and a lot of times what we do is we read it and we're like, oh, I'm so comforted. And then we close the Bible and just stop reading. And I'm like, hey, just really keep reading a little bit. Because right after John 3.16 and John 3.19, Jesus says, this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world. And he, he's talking about himself. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light. He goes on to say, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you get that? What I'm saying about Thomas, Thomas is condemned for his refusal to trust Jesus. And then what happens in the next, these last verses in John chapter 20, this is the climax of the whole book. John has been building up to this moment, to the response of doubting Thomas. Watch it. More than a week later, Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And look at what, what Thomas says to him. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas isn't swearing like, Oh my God! He's not swearing. He's not taking God's name in vain. He's saying, Jesus, I see now. You are my Lord. You are my God. You see, proving the thing John started out with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what what are the next two words? Was God. It's the climax of John. And then listen to how, how this chapter ends out. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. That is the thesis statement. I know you all know what a thesis statement is, right? That's the thesis statement of the book of John, those two verses, so that they and we might believe Two things, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And in that believing, Thomas is forgiven his unbelief. Did you see where Jesus spoke about you if if you're a follower of Christ? Did you see that in verse 29? Where he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Does that describe you? Um, If you're trusting Christ... If you're what we would call a a regenerate Christian, then you actually have seen Jesus. And I'm not talking about with this eye. I'm talking about something like the Bible in Ephesians calls it like the eyes of our heart. And and, and this is is what this means. It means that as you pick up, as you pick up the Bible and you flip through it and you read its pages and, and, and you read about Jesus Christ. Your soul is drawn to him. Your soul is connected with the living Jesus Christ. You you hunger for him. You desire him. You want him in your life. You want him in control. You want him in charge of every part of your life. That's what it means to have seen Jesus Christ by the eyes of faith. One of my favorite things to do is to sit down and talk with people who are not Christians. I love talking with atheists. That's like one of my favorites. I love talking with Muslims. I love talking with even Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. It's so fun when they come to my house. I'm like, come on in, and you know, we'll put some tea on for you, whatever, and like, they don't really stay around that long. I don't know why, you know. I start citing their book to them, like, well, but in the Book of Mormon, it says this, and they're like, close their books, like, we have to go. I'm like, ah, yeah, I thought so. I do love talking with people who don't yet know the Lord. And anytime people say to me, like, this is just a myth. It's just like this myth that you have in your, your brain. You've convinced yourself that Jesus is alive. And, and I just, I look at him and say, I know him. You can't tell me that. I know him. And I love him. And he has loved me. And he has changed me. Just before worship started, 
I uh, was chatting with Ben about, okay, where's the microphone? You want me to come up here? You know, I told him that a few minutes before we, we gathered, uh, Nicole and I went up the street. We got a slice of pizza. And as we were walking down, I, I told my wife, I said, I said, hey, this is crazy that I have the privilege of preaching the good news to students at University of Georgia. Because before I came to faith, about 25 years ago, prior to that, when I was a teenager, I used to come to Athens. I grew up in Atlanta. We would drive out to Athens, me and my friends. And why did we always come out? Let's meet some girls, man. And we'd come and we'd drink and smoke up and do all this kind of stuff. That was me just a few years ago. And, but the grace of God just broke into my life and changed everything. Changed everything. So don't tell me he's not real. He's changed my life. Now, let me close in the next couple moments by suggesting that there might be, you might have one of two reactions to, to Jesus' resurrection. Either you're too bad or God is too mad to forgive you. Maybe you think, well, look, okay, I, I, I get it, you know, about Jesus. And, and, and maybe, maybe it's true that he, he loves sinners, but dude, Nathan, you, you don't know, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad the things are that I've done. And, and as loving, as lovingly as I can, can I just tell you, stop it. Stop it. Don't ever say that to Jesus. You know what you're doing? You know where you're looking? Right here. Have I been too bad? Have I done enough? Is my faith strong enough? The essence of faith is you quit looking in here and you start looking at Jesus. That's the essence of biblical faith. And furthermore, here's the kicker. If you think you're bad, what was the name of the first woman who went to the tomb? What was her name? We read it. All together now, Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, verse 2, tells us that when Jesus first met Mary Magdalene, she had seven demons in her. In the Bible, the number seven, it means like, like completely, <clears throat> like totality. Do you, do you know what that means? When Jesus came to Mary Magdalene, she was utterly possessed by Satan. <laughs> and Jesus healed her. And he changed her life. So quit. Stop it. If you say, I'm too bad. What I've done this time. Or you might say, well, maybe God's just too, too mad. Maybe God's like my parents or my friends who when I slight them, when I do something wrong, they kind of hold it over my head and say, well, maybe if you straighten up a little bit, then uh, down the road, I'll forgive you. <clears throat> Have you ever texted a friend an apology? This is a dumb idea. Don't ever do this, okay? Because you know what happens. You text it, and you hit send, and you're just like biting your nails away, just waiting. And sometimes the friend is, is okay to, I'll just kind of I'll just relax for a little bit and, and let him sweat it out. <clears throat> Folks, Jesus Christ is not like that. He's not like that at all. He seeks you. He wants to 
forgive you. All you have to do is humbly come before him and say, Jesus, I was wrong. I know, doggone it, I did it again. But will you forgive a broken sinner like me? The hope of John 20 is the hope of resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, and in his resurrection, get this, he secured your resurrection. If you believe that he's the Christ, and by believing you have life in his name. You see, when my son was crying about the reality of his mom dying and not crying about the reality of my dying, we were able to hold out hope and say, son, it's true. There, there is this awful thing that's very permanent. It's called death. But because mommy and daddy are in Christ, and son, we want you to be in Christ as well, we will, we will live again. We will be resurrected. Hope of the resurrection is for the Christian who believes the words of John Newton, who said, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Mm-hmm.